Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Today, we will be discussing the prospects for democracy and investment in the Middle East. We invite you to submit your questions on these topics and more for today's guest, David Butter. David is the Middle East and North Africa Regional Director for the Economist Intelligence Unit by, by using the chat feature on the bottom of your screen. Special greetings to World Affairs Council members, economist subscribers, and clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally in Jones Day, one firm worldwide. Now, if this is your first time tuning in, we encourage you to listen to Global IQ audio cast archives available on both iTunes and the Council's website. That's at dfwworld.org forward slash global IQ. During the program, you have the chance to win prizes courtesy of The Economist by being the first to correctly answer one of our IQ challenge questions, again, using the online chat feature. Stay tuned for your opportunity to win. David Butter has been covering the Middle East for UK-based news agencies since 1984, following four years of full immersion as a young reporter in Beirut. He graduated with degrees in Arabic and Persian from Oxford before earning a master's degree in comparative politics from Sussex University. Before joining the EIU in 2000, he was news editor for the prestigious Middle East Economic Digest. He is, is without question, one of the world's leading go-to experts on the Middle East. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, It's a pleasure. Uh, Just recently, the EIU published a report, Spring Tide, Will the Arab Risings Yield Democracy, Dictatorship, or Disorder? In it, uh, a degree of probability was assigned to different scenarios on whether or not there would be a democratic breakthrough or continued authoritarianism, or as you described, a meager democratic harvest. Uh, To begin our discussion, could I ask you to share with our audience a summary of these findings? The main probability that we uh, we work with was um, what I call a disorderly democracy, um, in that the hopes and expectations of the initial Arab Spring um, were inevitably going to uh, be disappointed in many instances, but that overall um, we'd see coming out of this whole uh, period of turbulence a marginally more democratic, more representative uh, set of systems across the Arab world than we had before. And, of course, that's not saying a great deal because the region's always been very authoritarian uh, and very repressive. Um, but, uh, you know, we were focusing more on the fact that some sort of political gridlock, very messy kind of p- political process was going to happen and that in many of the countries where popular uprisings were happening, um, the, the the struggle would uh, would go on for some time before... Um, perhaps the the, the popular will was expressed. Um, We also looked at the possibility of a backslide in that um, it was so messy that uh, it would just become dysfunctional and that in some cases you'd end up with even more authoritarian regimes and military rule than you had before. Um, And The final um, option we had, about 20% possibility, was that there really would be quite a significant advance for democracy across the region. This would be the, the optimistic scenario uh, and we very much link this into our expectation that if that happened, the economic benefits would be that much better and that we definitely believe that there was enough evidence of a correlation between good governance and economic advancement. And in fact, the long-term picture in the Middle East has shown that uh, 
the economic development has actually been held back very observably by the lack of democracy and good governance across the region. I, I think the EIU and your colleagues at The Economist have, have certainly been more cautious than some of the reportings we've seen uh, perhaps in the mainstream media here. Uh, it, it seems that maybe we were swept up in too much euphoria of, of what occurred very quickly in Tunisia and Egypt, but when you really look at it, um, the protests in Bahrain have been quashed. Um, certainly uh, what's happening in Libya and Syria is very uncertain, and then in Saudi Arabia and UAE and, 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 and Qatar, for instance, uh, there's been all these special payments and subsidies. Um, do, you, do you anticipate that there's going to be a continuation of sporadic protest with a real effort towards democracy, or are we um, just going to see maybe a continuation of sporadic activities, and then they'll be put down quite quickly? Oh, well, it certainly is um, a slightly clearer picture has started to emerge. Um, we've got political processes happening in Tunisia and Egypt, um, a very difficult road towards more or less writing new constitution, building a new system from scratch in uh, very difficult circumstances. But that's happening and it's going on uh, as we speak. Um, uh, elsewhere, of course, we've got Libya, Syria, and to some extent Yemen, um, where we've not got yet beyond a, a kind of civil conflict, um, a war in a sense in, in Libya, um, a, a very, very brutal regime crackdown underway in Syria, but also a very strong fight back from uh, the population who are still making their feelings very strongly felt. Um, but of course we do have uh, a kind of top-down um, stirrings uh, from some of the regimes who feel that they can head off trouble in the future by uh, offering some kind of limited uh, crumbs from the table of democracy in places like Jordan and, uh, and Morocco, and indeed in some of the Gulf states, uh, you know, in, in the United Arab Emirates, um, the last time they had elections, it was with a college of 6,852 selected people. Um, now they're going up to uh, about 100,000, and, um, well, they may actually allow all uh, Emiratis to vote, in about 10 years' time. So in the context of the region, there certainly is movement, and it's going to continue. You know, one of the things that you and I talked about last week when we touched base was the impact of subsidies. And later on, I read that 20% uh, of Egypt's uh, budget is made up of subsidies, uh, largely in, in food and, and fuel. Uh, and, and I believe shortly after Mubarak was... Uh, Dethroned, if you wish, uh, some of these subsidies were in increased. Uh, how do you how do you deal with that? Well, I think in Egypt, um, I mean, to be precise, there hasn't really been any increase in in those subsidies, um, and the the subsidies on on bread and basic food and services are, are not actually uh, the biggest part of the subsidies budget. That actually is fuel and electricity and energy and so on, um, and there's clearly been, um, this is a big burden on the state, um, but Egypt is also quite a significant oil uh, producer, and so what it gets on the, uh, the debit side and having to pay for subsidies, um, it, it also receives on the revenue side from, its, uh, from the oil export revenue it, it gets. So the subsidies will go up if oil prices go up, but also the revenue goes up, so it's just slightly uh, cancelled out. Um, the the other countries, um, Saudi Arabia and so on, I mean, they can afford 
to sell gasoline and natural gas and so on at, at very low prices. Their production costs, of course, are low. So you can't necessarily say that because the Saudis don't pay very much for their oil, um, you can't really relate that to the global price because they're, they're, not, they're not quite equivalent. Um, but, of course, in the region where we've seen the slightly freakish uh, phenomenon of the most successful market-based subsidy removal program uh, possibly in history, um, maybe to hype it up a little bit, has been in the Islamic Republic of Iran where um, the president, Ahmadinejad, has approached subsidies reform in the most radical way we've seen in the Middle East. Um, and somehow he's managed to do it um, without uh, getting loads of people on the street protesting. Um, uh, so that, in fact, is perhaps an object lesson of what can be achieved. Um, the way they've done it uh, was actually be, by being very efficient in uh, getting compensation payments through to people. Uh, and I think some number crunching done by, um, I can't remember which, it was one of the American uh, tech institutes, found out that the benefits to the people at the bottom 10% of the pile in Iran um, from the compensation payments were seven times more than the benefits that they got from being able to buy uh, food and fuel and everything else uh, cheaply. So, in fact, this, this went to prove uh, the old adage that subsidies, of course, um, keep people alive at the bottom of the heap, but a lot of the benefits from subsidies actually go to people who don't need them, um, to, to, the, to the richer segments of the population. Um, so, uh, you know, subsidies is always going to be a, uh, a live issue in the region, and I think what we've seen is that it's an inefficient means to protect uh, regimes from the anger of their people. Uh, the Mubarak regime, for example, could uh, keep people quiet to some extent over a long period by continuing to provide very cheap bread uh, and fuel, but ultimately it wasn't enough to guarantee that the regime could stay in power forever. Um, and whoever comes next in Egypt when they have to um, deal with and uh, make plans on the economy, um, they're going to have to look at this whole subsidies issue um, just like uh, the Mubarak regime did in terms of the burden it places um, on the economy and the inefficiency of subsidies as, uh, as an economic tool. It's very interesting what you said about Iran. When, when, when did that transformation begin, and has it been widely recognized, say, by the IMF or others? Um, the, uh, the sanctions on Iran perversely probably um, helped concentrate their minds. Iran had very, very low prices for, for gasoline in particular, um, and it was importing a great deal because the, the cheap availability of gasoline for them um, meant that this was uh, a license to smuggle. Um, when sanctions came on, I think the, the West identified the gasoline import habit of Iran as a point of weakness. So they had a look at the whole thing and said, well, um, if we um, charged gasoline at its proper cost, we could, uh, we'll drive down demand and so we won't be vulnerable um, if somebody cuts off uh, the, our, our imports of gasoline, and that, of course, um, has worked. The uh, actual implementation started towards the end of last year. Um, I think we've had six rounds now of, of payments. Um, uh, it, it's going to involve 
probably up to around $40 billion a year uh, that the Iranian government is going to pay straight into the bank accounts of uh, the Iranian people. Uh, and, of course, they have um, got a lot more people, banks, if you like, uh, local post offices have been turned into banks. Lots of private banks have sprung up all over Iran to actually handle these payments. Smart card ID systems have been, uh, cards have been distributed very widely. Um, and that $40 billion comes out of around $100 billion, which they get from, from oil revenues. And I think that one of the problems that um, maybe you know, those policymakers who are looking for points of weakness in Iran and ways to hit them and sanctions, um, that they are now looking at the difficulty that Iran is having in actually getting the uh, proceeds of their oil exports, especially getting the cash back into Iran, from buyers such as India, China, and South Korea uh, as a means to, uh, to make things difficult for the government. So this is an ongoing, uh, ongoing battle. Um, so I think the subsidies, in a sense, uh, partly been, the subsidies reforms have partly come about um, um, because of pressures from the West. Now, of course, the policy itself is something that the IMF, uh, in particular, has applauded. Um, they applaud not only the principles behind reforming subsidies out of the system, but they've also looked closely at the way the Iranians have done it and commended them for the effectiveness of, uh, of that implementation. Uh, we have uh, a, a number of questions that are coming in, and again, I want to encourage our listeners to submit their questions on the online forum. Uh, Gary asks, what were the key criteria that the EIU used to project the three outcomes could you take Egypt and a couple of the key criteria and explain how your judgment worked? Thank you, Gary. Um, on the political analysis, um, the, the criteria really was um, looking at developments um, from, from day to day, um, our own system of, uh, of political forecasts. Um, it, it was fairly subjective, uh, I'll have to say, in that we, uh, we had to come up with our, our best guess what sounded consistent to us um, in terms of the way we thought things would, uh, would pan out. Um, perhaps it was maybe slightly more scientific on the, uh, um, on the economic side as we did use 50-year um, data series um, and our own um, democracy index um, that we, we do for some time um, to, to look at about 10 different categories of how we'd, uh, we'd define countries as being more or less democratic than others. But, uh, you know, in a forecasting exercise of this sort, um, it, it, was, it was quite a subjective analysis um, um, in line with the sort of views that we take about how we think that countries will evolve and what that would mean for political stability and effectiveness. Will you be updating this on a, on a regular basis? Do you have um, well, I mean, that, that is part of our job, and we do country analysis here, and we do, um, you know, we do our best uh, to provide five-year um, forecasts out on, on a whole lot of criteria. I mean, obviously, the, uh, the principal areas are in uh, our economic databases, but um, particularly in the Middle East, um, how we think that uh, the political scene is going to evolve has a crucial bearing on everything else. Um, so, uh, so we do actually constantly and regularly um, keep those, um, those analyses live. 
One of the questions that always comes up, and especially now, is uh, the, the role of political Islam and, and whether or not Islam and democracy can coexist. Uh, help us really def define, I mean, are, 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 are the terms mutually exclusive? Uh, is Islamist the right word that we should be using for these parties? Uh, and pro provide your insight on that, if you would, please. Yes, I mean, it is a, is a fascinating um, and very relevant topic. I mean, my view is that um, we don't yet know um, that, it, in a sense, it's up to the, uh, the parties that would define themselves of having, um, you know, Islam and the propagation of Islam as part of their agenda to, uh, to prove that they can be effective Democrats. Um, in the case of the parties that uh, are coming forward in Egypt and Tunisia, um, the Freedom and Justice Party in Egypt, for example, which has been formed by the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, considers that um, the way it operates is actually um, a kind of model for democracy and that the, some of the liberal and secular parties um, are, uh, are more dubious and that they are constantly trying to change the rules. Um, so there, there is, a, 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 let's say, sometimes a healthy argument, sometimes unhealthy arguments, between um, the, the, the liberals, if you like, or the Democrats, the secular Democrats, and the Islamists about who is really more democratic. Um, and at the moment, um, you know, as we speak, we have an argument in that the, the liberals have, uh, have come up forward in Egypt, uh, persuaded the government to issue a set of constitutional principles um, that, uh, that highlight things like uh, lack of discrimination, human rights, they refer to the state as being a civil state, um, and they then, as a kind of coda, they say, while adhering to the existing uh, Article 2 in the Egyptian Constitution, which says that the Islamic Sharia is a principal source of, uh, of legislation. Now, the Islamists cry foul because they say that this is, uh, this is the Constitution supposed to come after the next election, and that the liberals are trying to prejudge the results of the election by... Uh, by setting the constitutional agenda in advance. Now, of course, the liberals say that the, uh, the Islamists, um, the timing of the election, the fact that it's coming um, before the secular parties have had a proper period in which to establish themselves, mean that the Islamists are going to dominate the parliament. They will then stack the constitutional assembly in their favor. Then they'll come up with a constitution which is much more explicitly based on uh, Islam than um, this current rather vague formula has it. So, um, as you can see, once you get into the details of, uh, of, of these sort of things, just purely on the politics, um, you can get into all sorts of arguments. Um, even on the on the question of the of the U.S., um, the U.S. AID office in Egypt um, thought that it would be a good idea to help um, the the process of developing civil society organisations by uh, providing funding to non-governmental organisations. Um, now that was fine. There were a lot of Egyptian groups that applied for the funding. But uh, the, the, the military and the Islamists, to some extent, looked, uh, they smelled a rat because they said basically the people who are going to go to the USAID are going to be liberal and secularists, uh, the kind of Democrats that we think are not really real Democrats, and that they will take foreign funding and they will tilt the whole 
debate against Islam. Um, so this into this kind of nest of vipers, the head of USAID fell, and, uh, and um, I think the last news is that he's um, had to leave. Um, you know, nobody said exactly why, but it's clear that uh, this was partly uh, to blame. And there's um, been very strong criticism of uh, the U.S. ambassador, um, Ambassador Patterson, some pretty tough cartoons and so forth in some of the Egyptian press. Uh, indeed. I mean, I think that, that this is um, where it uh, depends from what perspective you're looking. If you're, if you're an Islamist in, uh, in Cairo, um, you don't necessarily take it for granted that the, uh, you know, the, the place where real democracy comes from is from the uh, American Constitution. Um, you know, I think that, that they uh, see the American history of trying to promote democracy and human rights across, uh, across the world as being, um, say, hypocritical or mixed in with other agendas that, um, that are not really democratic at all and that um, you know, whatever emerges and calls itself Islamic democracy will be better. Um, so, uh, you know, this, I think at the moment we're talking about a debate um, rather than a conflict, but um, certainly I think in Egypt, um, as the elections approach, um, we're looking at uh, the things that could get quite sharply polarized. Well, you've, you've been a keen observer of the region for a long time. What, what should the United States do at a time like this? Should they stand down and just see what happens, or you know, what, what, what's the best, what's the best uh, strategy? Um, no, I think that um, you know, the United States. Uh, I mean, it does have a difficult position because a lot of people in the Middle East um, uh, have a habit of uh, seeing the United States as being all powerful, um, usually in an in an evil basis um, uh, of manipulating everything. Um, yet at the same time, they also look to the United States to solve problems. Um, and I think that um, it's perfectly fine for the United States to be actively involved, to stand by well-known United States principles, um, which, you know, obviously are um, part of that, uh, those sets of principles of looking after U.S. Uh, interests, interests of U.S. companies and people. The other part of it is um, a traditional uh, mission, if you like, uh, to promote democracy and human rights. You know, however, uh, cynical some people may be about that, but that is definitely part of um, what I think the U.S. role has been for a long time and should continue to be. Um, it, occasionally, that will get the United States into into a pickle, into rather difficult <coughs> situations. Whether this is something like we were discussing in Egypt, or issues like Saudi Arabia, where you know, President Obama spoke very eloquently about the uh, uh, trouble uh, and the sufferings of the Bahraini people under the oppression of their government, um, the, the way the protests were suppressed, but uh, did not in that particular uh, speech mention anything about Saudi Arabia, um, a country which, of course, did uh, participate very actively in the suppression of the Bahrain protests. Um, it's never going to be easy, and, uh, and, uh, but I think you know, the, the basic principles and the basic interests um, are inevitably going to have to be um, stood by. Uh, we, we'll get to our first challenge question in just a moment, but uh, Frank asks, does the EIU see much fertile ground for Islamists in Tunisia 
And before you go to that, I'd like just to read this quote that I saw earlier today by uh, Najib Shebi, who is the leader of the Progressive Democratic Party in Tunisia, which I understand is the second largest party. And, and he said, I am not worried as much about the Islamists so much as the Democrats because they're spending so much time bashing each other uh, 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 rather than putting forward formal policies. Um, I wonder if you could take both of those questions um, uh, together. Well, I think that that picture in Tunisia and, and Egypt are quite similar. Um, and in Tunisia, um, the, the main Islamist party, the, the uh, Nahda party, um, <clears throat> does look to be uh, very well organized. It looks to be preparing itself for the eventual elections um, in, in a very disciplined way. Um, I think, as in Egypt, there have been some splits in the Islamist movement, um, but uh, I think in Tunisia, one of the advantages that the Nada party has is that uh, there isn't quite such a large, um, if you like, uh, lunatic fringe to the Islamic, Islamic movement um, as there is in, in Egypt, and that um, you have the Muslim Brotherhood uh, having to contend with uh, people who are more radical on the outside of them, the, the Salafists. Um, uh, that's not quite as, as strong in Tunisia. Um, so a, a sort of more technocratic Islamist uh, sort of party is um, likely to evolve there. And uh, I think um, the, the PDP leader was also, um, and what he was saying is very true reflection of the frustration that a lot of non-Islamist politicians have is that um, everything is so fragmented and the non-Islamist parties seem to spend so much time and energy in the arguing amongst each other about very fine and rather irrelevant uh, uh, details that it, it's clear that they uh, have by no means proved their ability to take seriously um, the, the task of credible government. Um, and again, uh, you know, in Egypt, some of the reactions um, of, uh, you know, even very conservative bankers, Egyptian bankers who've um, gone back there, say, look, you know, as far as I'm concerned, um, I sit with the liberals and the secularists and all we hear is kind of rather woolly, unrealistic kind of socialistic views about, um, you know, how, uh, you know, people should immediately be given jobs and lots of money. Um, whereas from the Muslim Brotherhood, we hear a far more sort of sober and realistic assessment of the kind of um, economic uh, challenges that any new government's going to face. Um, let's go ahead and do our first challenge question. And this is thanks to our good friends at The Economist, a year-long subscription. And the question is, Egypt's transitional government introduced a minimum wage for workers equal to the nation's poverty line. When adjusted for exchange rates, this wage is equal to approximately what percentage of the federally mandated minimum wage in the United States? Is the correct answer A, 10%, B, 25%, C, 50%? Be the first person to send in the correct answer and receive, hopefully, an extension to your subscription to The Economist. What, you know, it's always hard to make estimates like this, but what percentage do you expect the Islamic parties to uh, receive in the elections in, in, in Tunisia and Egypt, respectively? Um, well, my guess would be, in Tunisia, we've got a slightly different situation in that the first election is for uh, the Constituent Assembly, um, and um, I would expect the, um, the, the Islamists 
to be quite strongly represented in that, uh, maybe to have a small majority on it. Um, but we, we've still got quite a long way to go in Tunisia before we uh, arrive at the first parliamentary election. Um, in Egypt, of course, the parliamentary election is going to come first. And um, the Muslim Brotherhood Party uh, has been a little bit coy about its ambitions. Um, it's said to start with it won't seek a majority, so it won't put up candidates um, in more than half the seats. Um, well, with the opposition so fragmented that even if the Muslim Brotherhood got 25 or 30 percent from its designated party, um, it would still probably be the largest party in the parliament. Um, then you would also have the factor that um, there are other Islamist parties um, that would pick up um, a certain percentage and you could well have um, Salafists or even other Muslim Brotherhood people standing as independents. Um, so um, I, I think it's quite difficult to see um, any alternative to an Egyptian parliament that one way or the other will have a majority of people on the Islamist side um, uh, because there's simply no other political forces that... Um, uh, have the, the organization and national appeal um, that, uh, that the Islamist movement has um, in, in total. And so, I mean, that does, uh, that does pose an issue in that um, it, you know, if the Muslim Brotherhood is uh, dominating the agenda, um, they are trying to provide assurances that they're not going to do anything um, destabilizing. They're not going to try and push for a constitution that is just purely drawn from the Quran, and that they will take into account the views of everybody in Egypt. Um, I think there are people on the liberal and the secularist sides who don't necessarily trust the Muslim Brotherhood when they say that, um, and have a kind of nightmare scenario whereby uh, the agenda is going to be set by the more radical end of the Islamist spectrum. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, this is going to be the big issue that um, that has to be put to the test. Um, I'm, I'm inclined, in my view, to see uh, that until proven otherwise, we should perhaps give the Muslim Brotherhood a chance uh, and their party a chance to, um, you know, to establish that what they say is what they mean. We have uh, obviously a number of countries and issues to discuss, um, but let me switch over to Syria for a moment. Um, Nancy asks, do you think the situation in Syria will cause destabilization in Lebanon? Um, I, well, the quick answer is uh, yes, it probably will. Um, and I think that one of the early signs of that is that um, uh, we've, we've had a slight shift in the position of Saudi Arabia towards uh, Syria uh, after sitting on the sidelines and really saying nothing um, about the, um, the killings of civilians um, in, in Syria. The Saudi king has come out and condemned uh, the Syrian regime. Um, and so that's put Saudi Arabia and Syria back into some kind of confrontation. Of course, in Lebanon, um, we had a, a, a supposedly a cooperative move between the Saudis and Syria for the last couple of years until the end of last year. Um, but then the, the Syrian side 
um, made a grab for power, if you like, um, in, uh, to the benefit of Hezbollah and Iran, and the Saudis were left um, really licking their wounds politically. Um, uh, so now, since January, we've had a Hezbollah, uh, Syria-dominated uh, majority government in, um, in Lebanon, uh, and I think that from the Syrian point of view, that a change in the Saudi position um, would be likely to manifest itself in the Saudis putting pressure in Lebanon, perhaps to try to bring down this Hezbollah Syrian-dominated government. And so I think it's no real surprise to see that the weak link, if you like, of the, uh, of the Lebanese government, which is the Druze leader, Walid Jumblat, who switched sides um, to, uh, you know, from the Saudi camp to the Syrian camp last year, that he's been spending time in Damascus. Some other Druze um, politicians have been over there. They've been received by one of the vice presidents, who's the former head of intelligence in Syria, um, Hamid Nassif. So I think clearly the Syrians have been issuing a warning, saying that um, if the Saudis try and uh, meddle in Lebanon and get the Druze to change positions again, then there will be some consequences. Um, so I, I think that there are all sorts of um, triggers that can be uh, be pulled in, in Lebanon, and uh, it, it certainly does look like um, the, the instability, one way or the other, uh, is going to have an impact over there. Which would be such a shame, because it seems that Lebanon has you know, finally begun to find its footing again after so many years of civil war and violence. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be violent in, in, in Lebanon. I think there's a kind of standoff between Hezbollah and Israel. Neither of them are interested in another war. Um, but even if it has been relatively stable in, in Lebanon, it's, it's certainly been very uh, unsatisfactory. I don't think you can say that um, um, since the assassination of Rafi Hariri that Lebanon really has had a, uh, as a stable government, although they have had periods in which um, things have gone quite well, but that's more to do with uh, the, the way um, economic conditions have been in the wider region. I want to congratulate Matt. He uh, gave us the right answer. The minimum wage in Egypt that is equal to the nation's poverty line is equal to approximately 10% of the minimum wage found in the United States. Matt, you'll be receiving, I hope, an extension to, to your subscription to The Economist. Uh, we have a lot of questions on business, and, and uh, you know, it's certainly difficult to make a, a, a conclusion ac across the entire Middle, Middle East. But um, Wayne asks, what industry sector focus would be the most productive following the turbulence of the Arab Spring? And, and maybe you can pick a, a, a few key countries where um, uh, investors might, might, might be thinking about going in as you, as you tackle that question. Um, well, that, of course, is, is as you say, uh, is a broad question. Um, the, uh, the underlying um, economic opportunities in the Middle East, I don't think, have been changed hugely um, by the Arab Spring. Um, if you're talking about countries like Egypt, um, which have a large population, um, a fairly diversified market, um, then you still have some attractions in, um, you know, basically uh, manufacturing um, in, in Egypt is, is still uh, something that is, is worth looking at. They have quite a healthy um, if small automotive industry. They have uh, IT and telecoms have been a growth industry in the past. 
the consumer goods uh, sector is always going to be um, uh, an attractive option for, for investors as, as you're looking at a population that's going to be increasing. Um, they've got, you know, there's hopes that they can get back to the kind of growth they had uh, in the latter part of the Mubarak era. That was in the 6 7% range. And some of the investors that were um, looking to increase their operations in Egypt uh, before the revolution are still in there. Um, I mean, recently, Electrolux makes washing machines and so on, um, has gone ahead with a, an acquisition deal it was um, planning um, before the revolution. Nestle has uh, confirmed that it's still still investing. Um, so I think if you're in Egypt, if you're in markets in these sort of countries, um, there's no real reason to get out. Um, it may be uh, more of a leap of faith for, for new investors to go in at the moment. It's probably too early. You have to take too many bets, I think, with the way things are going to pan out. The other side of the coin is that where's the, the, you know, the action in the Middle East for quite a long time has been in, in the countries that, have, um, uh, that are big oil exporters. Um, the oil prices have uh, continued to be high for a long time. There are still big surpluses there. Uh, so um, we are seeing a lot of activity in Saudi Arabia um, only in the last two or three weeks. So we've seen Dow Chemical confirm um, that it's going ahead with the $20 billion chemicals project with Saudi Aramco. Um, we've got Alcoa in the uh, aluminium industry in Saudi Arabia. Um, you've got uh, all the sort of non-oil sectors in Saudi Arabia that are going to benefit in some way from the um, the, the extra spending that the government's putting into the economy because ultimately um, they have this uh, fear of uh, um, one day that the, uh, that, the, that the Saudis may also um, protest and demand uh, political changes. So they're trying to buy them off in a way. But, you know, there's no getting away from the fact that uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, Qatar, United Arab Emirates um, are, are the places where a lot of the economic action is, along, of course, with Iraq, um, clearly uh, still a country that's um, plagued by violence. Um, the political scene in Iraq is not pretty. If, uh, in some ways, it's um, it's kind of democratic, um, but um, just looking at the raw growth prospects, um, a lot of it based on the expansion of the oil sector, um, Iraq for us looks like being one of the fastest growing countries in the Middle East for quite a long time to come. Um, David, let me ask you something about Iraq. We had uh, Iraqi ambassador speak oh, about a year ago at the World Affairs Council, and he said one of his disappointments was that U.S. companies are, are, are really not that active. Has that changed? Um, I mean, U.S. companies are, are there, but I think most of the comp companies that go into Iraq uh, would tend to become companies that are willing to take more high risks. The other the factor in Iraq is that um, the, the place that a lot of com companies go to do business is in the Kurdish region because uh, the business environment is much easier there. It's pretty secure. Um, so it is, in a way, the easy option for any company to set up an office uh, up in Erbil in the Kurdish region and try and do the um, to get into the Iraqi market. You know, there's a 20 million strong uh, market outside of the Kurdish region in Iraq. Um, 
Uh, and of course, um, U.S. oil companies are, um, among others, uh, are, are working in Iraq. Got uh, Chevron and, uh, and Exxon Mobil and Occidental, I believe, are all are all in there, but maybe not in the first rank. Um, um, BP's probably got the prize, um, the the plums, if you like, in the in the Iraqi um, garden. Um, we also see a lot of Chinese companies. Um, and the re reality also, um, we're looking at the Middle East, is that the uh, uh, companies from Asia are more aggressive. Um, they tend to have more success. They're more committed in the region. Um, and, uh, and above all, um, if you look around the Gulf into the energy sector and infrastructure, um, the, uh, the South Korean companies are going to be um, up on the top of the top of the tree in more or less every single sector. Um, the Chinese uh, are obviously not far behind, but, uh, but probably at the moment are not quite so uh, effectively set up on the technology front. At the same time, if we're talking about um, oil services, for example, um, this is a huge business um, in Iraq and elsewhere in the Middle East, and you're certainly seeing a lot of American companies involved there. Um, I think only last week uh, Baker Hughes picked up a pretty big order for uh, um, rigs to be done for, uh, for look oil of Russia. So um, to say that the American companies are not there, I think, is a bit of an exaggeration. What about tourism? Uh, certainly tourism has been adversely affected in, in Egypt and Tunisia. Um, has, has Morocco gained uh, tourists because of that? And, uh, and how long do you, well, uh, how, how bad has the impact been on tourism in, in, in both Egypt and Tunisia? Well, tourism's being, being hit uh, from, from both ends. Um, uh, and just on Morocco, um, their numbers are actually uh, down. Um, but that could well be more to do with the Eurozone problems um, than necessarily just a kind of Arab Spring-related issue, probably a bit of both. Um, uh, obviously, Egypt uh, suffered pretty badly. Um, <clears throat> I mean, they were getting something like 12, uh, 12 million, even 14 million tourists um, last year, and that's going to be well down. Um, but they, you know, tourism is a very cyclical industry, um, they've had ups and downs before, um, and I think perhaps you could also say that uh, you know if a, if a country is too reliant on on tourism, that that's um, perhaps almost as bad as being too reliant on something like oil. That um, you certainly would be aspiring for a more diversified economy. You'd probably get more value added out of manufacturing necessarily than uh, than, than tourism. Um, but it is going to be a very hard hard road back. And I think the other problem with tourism is that um, if you lose the market, um, then um, you know rivals will come up, uh, and it's very difficult to get your, your market share back. Um, on the other hand, of course, if you're looking at Egypt, um, you can say that the you know the pyramids are not going to go away anytime soon. Um, they do have certain certain assets. They do have a lot of investment in their tourism infrastructure, uh, in terms of resorts which have been built over the next of the last 20 years down on the Red Sea. Um, so, uh, you know, eventually they, they, they'd hope that the tourists will come back. But, uh, you know, my feeling is that um, the, uh, it, it's still going to be um, a, uh, a rather depressed um, industry for some time for, for both these factors, the, the Arab Spring uh, disruptions 
um, and a lot of the uh, you know tourism market for the Middle East is Europe-based, um, and with the, um, the the doubts and you know, problems of the European economies, uh, that this is um, this is something that's going to have an impact on on the Middle East market. And of course, one thing too to point out is what's occurred in Libya has had dramatic impact on on Egypt and Tunisia because many Libyans went there as tourists, and and also there were numerous. Uh, uh, worker, Libyan workers in, in Egypt and Tunisia, and providing remittances uh, back to back back home. Uh, well, of course, yes. I mean, Egypt is uh, is very um, dependent also on remittance income for hard hard currency. I think it probably gets more or less the same from remittances historically as it has uh, from tourism. That's getting up towards about nine and a half, ten billion dollars a year pre uh, pre crisis. Um, the numbers we've got so far show that um, the effects have not been that disastrous uh, on, on the remittances front. Um, there, were, there were quite a lot of Egyptians working in Libya, but it was never a very easy market. Uh, I think a lot of um, people who did work in, in Libya did um, have a lot of difficulty in getting their money back. Um, uh, you know, it certainly was rather a dysfunctional economy under, under Gaddafi. Um, uh, and so I don't think the impact on the Egyptians has been quite so so bad. Uh, they can compensate um, through uh, the better economic conditions in Saudi Arabia, where a lot of uh, Egyptians would work, and, and elsewhere in the Gulf. Uh, so that certainly, I think, is a, is a safety valve. And of course, the Suez Canal um, has continued to be a very useful source of revenue for for Egypt. That hasn't been affected by the unrest at all. Uh, that brings in probably around $5 billion a year, and the, the revenues have been slightly up um, since, the, uh, since the revolution. Um, that perhaps may have more to do with um, the fact that uh, the currency movements which are in favor because they're SDR, um, IMS Special Drawing Rights Related. Uh, let's give our listeners a chance to win Robin Wright's new book, Rock the Casbah, which received a very nice review uh, last week in the New York Times. The question is, and people are going to have to be quick on this one, because if you're avid readers of The Economist, I think you'll know the answer. The question is, in March, The Economist published its first rubric for gauging the potential for unrest in a given country based on a number of factors, including youth unemployment, literacy rates, education expectancies, and corruption. What is the name of this rubric? Is it the flag burner factor, the shoe thrower index, or the hot stove scale? Um, Ludwig gives us a, a good question to, to discuss. Um, certainly social media played a major role leading up to the revolutions in both Tunisia and Egypt, but he asks, how have social media communications worked now to shape the political and social change? Well, you could say that um, the, as we were talking before about the fragmented nature of the um, secular and liberal opposition, that um, you, you might say that the social media have, uh, have rather helped uh, that process of um, having lots of different groups um, rather than having a kind of unified and coherent uh, political movement um, arising out of the revolution. Um, so, uh, you know, they, they still are part of the picture. Um, we're getting a lot of, uh, you know, we've had over the last few months more 
regular demonstrations out in Tahrir Square in Egypt, so mostly organized through social media. Um, but I think there's an element, in a sense, that some of this, the, the novelty of this mode of communication is starting to wear off. Um, you know, perhaps uh, some of the people in, in, in Egypt are getting a little bit tired of um, uh, of a discourse which is just going round and round social media sites and is not really delivering anything um, much more solid than a whole lot of Twitter messages. Um, but, uh, you know, of course, in Egypt, as in elsewhere um, around the world, um, uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, BlackBerry messaging um, is all very much um, part of the the world we live in. Um, you know, the, the, there's another question as to whether that's, you know, how uh, fundamentally it's actually changed things or whether it's just another um, sort of aspect of, of the way we communicate. You know, David, one of the things that I was surprised about, and I, I want you to tell me if this number is, is accurate, is the uh, power and influence of the Egyptian army over its economy. Uh, I read that um, the military controls as much as 40% of Egypt's economy. Is that accurate? Um, I'd say no. <laughs> um, okay. I, I, I wouldn't really know how to calculate that. Um, uh, the, I mean, the Egyptian army is not as big as it was um, in the heyday of uh, Sadat and Nasser. Um, it does have a lot of um, uh, productive assets, um, that, uh, you know, including a, a factory that makes um, M1 Abraham tanks. Um, I think about 80% of the components are actually made in Egypt. Um, it's We've got shoe factories and uh, bread factories and farms and owns land and so on. So um, it's certainly an active player in the economy. Um, I think what's rather more difficult is perhaps to draw a line between you know, how you define something as being uh, the Egyptian army and uh, the rest of the economy. I think quite often they would overlap. Um, so so 40% is, is probably too high in my view. Um, an important part of the, the economy, yes, I would certainly agree with that, um, and, and also uh, a, uh, an opaque institution in terms of those economic interests, um, uh, perhaps a, um, a, a part of the whole corruption of the Mubarak and, uh, and even going back uh, you know, to the post-1952 Establishment, um, you know, the army's role in politics and the economy is not something that's necessarily up for discussion in the, um, the, the sort of post-revolution raking over uh, to search out for corruption. Um, of course, some of that may come out in the Mubarak trial um, when, uh, um, you know, if, if uh, um, the ex-president decides to call um, as witnesses. Um, people from the military and that if uh, he in his defense will uh, maybe try and put out there some some allegations um, that uh, you know his corruption was fairly small compared with what people uh, from the military were getting up to um, I mean another part of that is that um, we go back uh, really since Camp David in Egypt uh, the the military has been the recipient of um, a regular uh, military aid from the United States. Uh, a whole kind of industry has grown up around servicing 
the um, United States Foreign Military Sales Program in Egypt. Um, uh, and that's been involved um, companies building bases, it's involved logistics contracts, um, and, and as the Egyptians now kind of sift through all kind of business deals that were done during the Mubarak era, um, you know, it's probable or it's inevitable that every now and then they're going to come across things that, um, you know, might be traceable back to, uh, to people in the high levels of the military. Um, so it, it, is, it is a dark area. It's important. Um, I, I think that um, uh, it's even, you know, sporadically brought up in the debate. I know one of the presidential candidates in Egypt, uh, Bosena Kamel, is a, a woman, a former broadcaster. I mean, she certainly is highlighting this whole uh, case, this whole issue of the, the military's role as being an important thing to have in the public domain. Um, again, something which... Uh, the, the military themselves are, uh, are naturally very keen not to happen. Would, would you be willing to hazard a guess who might be the next president of, of, of Egypt from the announced candidates? Um, I'm uh, <laughs> uh, on the spot here. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, at the moment I'm going for a rather conventional um, view that um, probably uh, Amr Musa, uh, former foreign minister, um, Arab League secretary general, um, may well end up at the top of the pile. I mean, that's not really very bold um, sticking my neck out here because I think he's probably the, the, the favourite in, in most polls. But um, it's, we've still got quite a long way to go before we get to the presidential election. Uh, and it, it will be... Um, you know, the, Whatever happens in the parliamentary election, I think will have a quite an important bearing on it. Uh, Amr Musa certainly looks like he's got a good chance. Um, personally, um, I'm not sure whether Mohammed Al Barada, um, the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency former head, um, has, has quite got a broad enough appeal or charisma to um, um, to, to get the nod. Uh, then, of course, we do have uh, an Islamist candidate. Uh, Abdul Munim Abdul Futur, who's um, not an official Muslim Brotherhood candidate, but has Muslim Brotherhood um, you know, credentials. Um, you know, if we, if we say that basically, if anybody who's got a Muslim Brotherhood background is inevitably going to have a large core area of support in Egypt, uh, then he could have a chance. Um, the, the difficulty there would be that perhaps because the Muslim Brotherhood uh, is officially now hesitant about. Um, having too much power in its own hands because I don't think they want too much responsibility um, that they could have, perhaps tell their followers to back somebody else. Um, so, uh, but uh, you know, I think it's probably going to be between those three, in my view. Um, but, but we'll we'll see. It's not going to happen until I guess uh, maybe halfway through next year. And we'll, we'll certainly follow that with, with keen interest. Uh, I want to congratulate Diana. Diana knew that uh, the economist rubric for gauging the potential for unrest in a given country is the shoe thrower index. And Diana, you'll be receiving a, a copy of Robin Wright's book, The Kasbah. Uh, have time just for a few more questions, and they're both uh, focused on uh, business, and, and that is from Paul, what is the investment climate for U.S. companies in Bahrain? Um, Bahrain uh, is, uh, I mean, it's a very small country. Um, the uh, investment environment um, 
as the laws stand, uh, is very good for all foreign companies. Um, there's 100% ownership is allowed. Um, companies like Kraft Foods, for example, uh, gone in with 100% ownership and used Bahrain as a, as a place to um, produce and market goods um, all over the region. Um, but I think the problem for, for Bahrain is that uh, the... Um, the investment-friendly side of the country um, is very much associated with the Crown Prince, um, who uh, I think is probably regarded as being, um, being being seen within the Bahraini ruling family as having uh, been willing to make too many concessions to the opposition um, to the to the Shia opposition in particular. Um, so um, that's. Uh, and the Crown Prince certainly wanted to put in place investment-friendly regulations. He was um, standing up for efforts to improve governance um, in the face of, uh, of, of other parties in, in Bahrain um, who would, would you know, have been accused of uh, presiding over a very corrupt um, regime which the, um, you know, the openness of the economy had been abused the benefit of, um, of politically uh, well-placed people in that system. Um, so I mean, on paper, it is a good place to invest. Um, in reality, um, the, the political scene is still um, you know, very disturbed. Um, we don't really know exactly where it's going to go. Um, you know, if there is a, a, a new process of, of political engagement, then perhaps the... Um, that the crown prince tendency might come back to the fore, but at the moment it's certainly looking like it's the other tendency that's um, uh, that's in the ascendant. So uh, as far as Bahrain's concerned, um, I think companies going into the Gulf, um, if they're in I mean, the financial sector, is what Bahrain's good at. It has a very uh, well-established central bank. It's generally regarded as a safe play for for, for banks. But uh, I think if they looked at the region now and said, shall they go to Bahrain or go to Dubai? Um, or perhaps to uh, to Qatar, um, I think Bahrain definitely would be uh, third on the list. Third on the list. And then a country that I don't think would be on the list, but Karim asks, how do you see the situation in Yemen going forward? Uh, well, Yemen, um, we, we've got some developments sort of happening at the moment in that the uh, the, the president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, came out of hospital um, in Saudi Arabia after he was uh, recently um, injured in an attack on his compound. And I think that's galvanized the, the debate once more about um, you know, whether he should stand down or, or try to get back in. Um, and I think the wind's certainly blowing towards um, him having formally making a statement that he's going to stand aside, uh, that the um, vice president should take over for an interim basis and they'll launch a, um, a new process. So um, I, mean, I think the, the only kind of hopeful thing you'd say about Yemen is that um, uh, we've been talking about civil war, all-out fighting between the various factions. Um, there's certainly been a lot of violence there, but um, there does still seem to be something that you could call a political process um, around, um, and that, that um, with the president sort of back in play again um, politically, uh, even temporarily, um, I think it's quite important that this issue gets resolved. And does he stay or does he go? 
Um, and I think you know, certainly the consensus would be that uh, it would be a much more healthy development um, if the uh, if the president um, came out something else. <laughs> I'm going right. to stand aside. Right. Um, yeah, before we go, I'd like to switch continents uh, for a moment and ask for your first-hand views of what's been happening in, in, in London and elsewhere uh, throughout the UK this week. Um, well, I mean, clearly it was uh, a, um, a. In some ways, it was you know it's always a mixture between a shock and something that's not necessarily that surprising. Um, you know, the, the shock is that. Uh, the extent of the, the mayhem, um, and you know, in fact, it wasn't just um, a localized protest uh, rising out of one incident um, with a man shot by police. That it's um, that people popped up all over the place. That the uh, that the police um, weren't really um, able to stop um, some you know appalling destruction. Um, the, uh, the the fact that it's not surprising is that um, I think for a long time we've looked at the uh, at the economic problems facing uh, the United Kingdom and and obviously a lot of other countries in the Western world um, that um, we have big disparities in wealth we have uh, um, uh, economies bumping along at the bottom um, we have a whole population that um, the, the whole structure of the economy has been based on. Uh, the people at the bottom being kind of kept alive and kept in um, basic goods through uh, through the welfare state um, that that's not sustainable. That governments have racked up huge debts. Um, uh, you know, a whole kind of familiar uh, litany of, of problems. Um, uh, and and over in the good times, of course, the um, the wealth wasn't really very fairly distributed. Didn't trickle down very well. And a lot of these uh, very serious um, social problems um, have got disguised. So there's a whole kind of cocktail of, uh, of combustible materials out there um, that, that, that all came out in a very dramatic fashion over a few nights. Um, now, where, where we are now is we've got a mixture between, um, you know, quite robust views um, that criminality must be, must be punished and that perhaps the police should get tougher um, and, uh, and other responses are saying that um, um, okay, that's uh, that's what should happen. That uh, people shouldn't be able to go out and loot with impunity. But um, uh, this is a wake-up call um, uh, in terms of the depth of some of the social and economic problems, which are essentially um, you know, large urban youth populations. Um, that uh, that don't have a great deal of confidence in their future, um, and uh, you know I, I think that that's quite an understandable view. As um, you know, we we look outside of the uh, economic prospects for the West generally, and um, you know they they can be a bit scary, whoever you are. Well, I think it certainly caught us all by surprise, and it's something to to watch in in, in your country as as well as our own. David, thank you so much for being with us today. I know you have a very busy schedule, and uh, we certainly appreciate that, that you took time to be on Global IQ. Uh, you can certainly find more of David's in-depth analysis at eiumedia.com, and uh, you'll find just a plethora of information at the EIU website, and I encourage you to go there, uh, go there frequently. 
also want to remind you that this October, The Economist will host its third annual Buttonwood Gathering. This is a two-day conference that brings together global thought leaders, practitioners, and my favorite word, provocateurs in international finance. This year's conference is going to be taking place on October 26th and 27th in New York. Uh, for details, go to buttonwood.economist.com. I have the program right here on my desk, and I see that Mitch Daniels is one of the speakers as well as Larry Summers. So uh, it really is an outstanding conference, and I hope that you'll uh, consider going. And uh, there's a special discount that is only available to our listeners, and you can find out more information about that by going to our site. Again, if by chance you're not yet a subscriber to The Economist, please to go, go to economist.com to start your subscription today. And to find a World Affairs Council near you, go to worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and the World Affairs Councils of America in association with The Economist. Today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank and Jones Day. Remember, together The Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world.